This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast brought to you in association with Renewable UK. This week I'm joined by digital journalist Hamish Penman and our Asia editor Damon Evans. Hello guys, and we're gonna we're gonna kick off this week with uh, with Damon uh, what, talking about one of what could become one of the largest carbon capture sites in the world, but it seems to be drawing fire from I don't know if all angles is too is too uh, exaggerating it too much, uh, Damon. But it seems to be a lot of criticism here. Yeah, for sure, Alistair. It's uh, definitely under fire. It's a carbon capture and storage project that's um, associated with the Santos-led Barossa liquefied natural gas development uh, offshore northern Australia. The problem with Barossa is it's got an extremely high um, carbon dioxide content in the gas. Um, I think it's twice as much as the the next highest currently developed Australian fields such as Gorgon and Prelude. Um, it's one of the, the most carbon intense fields globally and by most rights, and if you're concerned about the climate, it probably wouldn't get developed. However, the Darwin LNG export plant is running out of gas because the Bay Wyndon field, which lies nearby Barossa in East Timor's waters, is almost depleted. So Santos needs to fill that LNG export plant and Barossa Gas has been picked to do that for various reasons. However, they have a problem with the car- uh, with the carbon dioxide and emissions. Uh, the plan is to pump um, carbon into the nearly depleted Bay of Wyndham field, and um, that has drawn criticism from some uh, NGOs who see that as kind of carbon colonialism. Mm. Um, dump in Australia's waste in a, uh, an impoverished neighbor's uh, backyard, uh, kind of like a, a dirty landfill. And it's also drawing criticism because the carbon capture and storage scheme has not been finalized. It, not, it doesn't have all its approvals for, for some parts of the project, like a, a pipeline that will pipe the carbon back to Bay Winden. And some people say that Santos is greenwashing and trying to create a diversion while construction for Barossa continues. The the FPSO is currently being built in South Korea. Uh, The project looks set to start up pumping gas and exporting LNG by the the mid-20s or or thereabouts. And um, so, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And as you mentioned, it could be one of the, the biggest CCS storage sites globally, I think the the proposed capacity is about 10 million tons per year. Um, But but the cynic in me questions everything about it. Nothing's really made a lot of sense so far. So the the storage site is in another jurisdiction, another country's jurisdiction, which complicates matters. It's in East Timor's water, but the Barossa field is in Australian waters. The LNG plant is in Australian territory. and Santos are proposing to get this up and running by 2025. Um, other partners include ENI, which is a partner in the Bay Wyndham field and has uh, fields nearby as well, which could benefit from CCS. Um, the East Timorese are kind of embracing it as an opportunity to earn more rents or revenues mm. from the petroleum industry. Um, but I can't help but wonder if um, the chief executive of Santos, he was he was nearly uh, he was headhunted to to lead Woodside, Australia's other major producer, last year, and he was kept on board with the promise of some very fat bonuses, 
um, if he stayed, uh, you know, running Santos mm-hmm. for another couple of years till the, the and got Barossa up and running. And um, yeah, I don't know. It just seems uh, that the, the critics are calling for the CCS project to be approved and working before they can export any LNG. So we don't have a repeat of what's happened at Gorgon in Western Australia with uh, Chevron's project where the CCS projects operating at half capacity, not really worked, had a lot of challenges. The The commitments made when Gorgon was approved have never, never really been hit. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, apologies if that's come out in a bit gobbledygook kind of no, manner. But, no, um, <laughs> not at all. It, uh, essentially, yeah, it's under fire. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it certainly sounded, and I think uh, the the it's a healthy uh, journalistic uh, cynicism you've got there. <laughs> um, I just want to ask about this idea of the the carbon colonialism, and, and yeah, interested to hear that the people of, of East Timor are are taking this on as 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 an opportunity. I'm just interested in hearing a bit more about this. This NGO uh, think tank here, I mean, I, I note that they've kind of cited that the, the impact of this project could uh, be felt for centuries, I think they're quoted as saying. I mean, have they have they gone into detail in terms of the kind of specific environmental concerns uh, beyond just, you know, dirty gas, I suppose, um, that they have, they have for East Timor? Is there any specific kind of... Um, circumstances around that particular um, area that maybe we should be paying more attention to? So I think the NGA is called Lao Hamutuk, and I think their concern is that East Timor is poorly equipped to kind of understand what it might be agreeing to with Santos by allowing the carbon and carbon dioxide to be stored in its uh, on its territory uh, at the the bottom of the ocean and what the implications may be in a hundred years time. Mm Um, and also whether it, you know, it says they're woefully ill-equipped to assess the implications of agreeing to this, um, and and also that NGO this week has lodged a, a um, uh, what's the word? Uh, Santos is trying to get an approval for the pipeline in Darwin, and so the NGO has, uh, I suppose, raised uh, queries or complaint or whatever you say or objection to 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 this this process, and. Um, I, you know, there's no. They, they don't. They, they cite reports from an institute for the energy, energy economics and financial analysis, which are the ones are putting out reports and analysing the the technicalities that this project is among the most dirtiest in the world, and that CCS won't really reduce emissions. Uh, that's the story we've got out today. Um, they've also chimed in again, saying. This project is problematic. It won't cut emissions. It's. Um, I think the 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 author the, the author of the report says um, the the way CCS is being favoured by Santos would bring little or no reduction in emissions while adding substantial cost delays and risk. Um, and he he doesn't shy away in um, basically saying this is not going to work it's very ill thought out and it's going to end up costing all all involved a lot of money uh, the other partners are from south korea and japan interestingly both nations which have net zero pledges and are taking uh, climate goals quite seriously mm. um, so it's very difficult for them to be involved in such a project without ccs so for everyone involved it's quite uh, useful to have this narrative that we are pursuing a CCS project. This very dirty um, Barossa gas will be uh, some of the emissions will be abated or 
you know, buried below the sea in the Bay of Wyndham field, and it's all good. Mm. But there, there are a lot of people questioning that narrative. The thing that the UK government, I know, is working on at the moment, because obviously CCS is, it remains nascent, particularly over, over here, regulatory issues like what happens if someone leaks a million, I'm taking a number out of the, out of the sky here, what happens if somebody leaks a million tons, tons of carbon from a CCS storage site? Who's liable? And I think it's really interesting to hear this this jurisdiction issue. And, and, and you said perhaps the people of East Timor are Ill, ill-equipped uh, potentially to understand what they're signing up to. I, I, would, I would hope that, um, you know, the liabilities of something going wrong are very clearly spelled out because I would assume um, Santos would be better uh, equipped to deal with the well, political and, and, let's be clear, financial fallout of something like that than uh, a relatively small uh, nation, right? So it's, it sounds quite concerning on that front, I suppose. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, and I think that's what uh, people like Lao Hamutuk are concerned about, and there's obviously very little regulatory oversight in a place like East Timor. Mm. Yeah, it's, you know, what what happens if something does go wrong? They they are ill-equipped and, yeah. Uh, and on, an, on another note, um, Impex, meanwhile, down the road, are also proposing a giant CCS hub in Darwin, actually in Australian territory, to abate emissions from their giant ICFIS LNG project. Um, and and if that gains traction and that goes ahead, then I'm not sure that I can see a rationale for having the Santos um, CCS hub at Bay of Wyndon. Okay. But um, yeah, only time will tell. Yeah, well, indeed, I think we'll 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 keep an eye on that. Very interesting developments, uh, potentially concerning developments going on there. But uh, yeah, we will park that for now. But we will be staying with uh, climate concerns. We're going to move over to the UK North Sea right after this. Join me, Hamish Penman, online on Monday the 7th of March for the second in Energy Voices Tracking Transition series on wind power. Across all four of these virtual events, we're assessing the wind sector's development to date and investigating what needs to happen to maximise its potential. Beamed live to our audience from the UK Cabinet Office in Edinburgh, this second session focusing on the UK state of play will zero in on the UK's burgeoning wind sector and the rich export opportunities it presents. Find out more and register free at trackingwind.com to join our virtual audience and hear from our expert panel led by SSE, fresh from their recent success in the Scotland leasing round. 7th of March, trackingwind.com. I can't wait to see you there. So this week we have uh, some more news regarding uh, climate checkpoints for new North Sea oil and gas fields. So the University College London has produced new research commissioned by the NGO group Uplift, I should make very clear. And it states that production rates in the UK North Sea, they must decline by 6 to 7% annually in the UK in order for the UK to stay aligned with the 1.5 degree Paris climate goals. And to be fair, that decline rate is about aligned with where we are now anyway, according to the, the Office for Budget Responsibility. But that also means that new oil and gas fields should not be approved, according to this, and about 16 billion barrels of resource should be left in the ground. And for for context, the the Oil and Gas Authority said the UK only has about 10 to 20 billion barrels of of oil and gas left anyway. So so the the ask is to relieve the, the vast majority of that in the ground. Now, as we know, 
The industry wants to bring new fields online, and we've talked in this podcast many times before about the reasons for that, linked to domestic supply, the economy, and reliance on imports. But to bring new fields online, um, the industry is working on climate compatibility checkpoint system, um, as set out in the North Sea transition deal signed last year, to ensure, you know, as, as it says on the tin, to make sure that any new fields are um, compatible with climate goals. There's a consultation on that currently underway. The interesting thing here is that the University College London um, research argues that any new UK production kind of risks adding to existing fields elsewhere in the world. It doesn't ensure that other potential incoming supplies are offset. So they're kind of arguing that in order to truly align uh, fossil fuel production in the UK with climate goals, these checkpoints would need to go out into the world, identify other fields out with the UK which are not going to produce in order to therefore say, okay, yes, you can produce this one in the UK instead. Which, uh, which uh, interesting, I'd be very keen to see how seriously or not that's, that suggestion is taken in this, in this consultation and whether or not that turns out to be the case. Obviously, that puts a very high burden of proof on the UK projects to do their due diligence in order to get the green light. And obviously, that puts um, you know, serious doubts, as they've said, on things such as the, the Cambo oil field, which already I think we can possibly say at this stage is in serious doubt, but uh, more on that later, perhaps. The, the Independent Committee on Climate Change in the UK is due to come back with its own findings on um, climate checkpoints in the next week or so, we understand. It might be later. Um, and I guess we'll We'll see what they have to say about it, but we're very interested to see um, what comes of that. I mean, I, I personally, I think this idea of identifying projects elsewhere in the world, which won't produce so that others in the UK can can um, do so, I, th I think there's uh, uh, there's going to be some questions about, about that um, and, and the fairness of something like that. Um, again, I'd be keen to see how seriously that's taken. And I suppose we should also point to the fact that the UK is going to be a net importer of hydrocarbons in, in most scenarios, I think, um, out to 2050. Uh, with declines, obviously, you know, even if new fields come online, that production rate is going to continue to decline. So we need to reconcile that with uh, the impact of, of more imports that will obviously lead to a higher carbon footprint too. But it certainly looks like some uh, headaches for new oil and gas fields coming on to the UK. It doesn't seem to be abating anytime soon. The big thing that stood out, from my point of view, is the fact that uh, the UCL modelling kind of came back and said we need to roll out and roll out quickly these these technologies that can contribute to negative emissions, and it specifically named carbon capture and storage. I'd be intrigued to know what Uplift's stance on that is, because it's potentially a bit of a sweeping statement, but, but environmental groups don't tend to like the idea of CCS at all. The Green Party in Scotland don't want it. Friends of the Earth in Scotland don't want it. They think it's an unproven technology. They point often to the stats that Damon reports on uh, on Gorgon and, and now the Santos project um, kind of pointing to its um, shortcomings. So whether this report will go any way to changing those sorts of um, attitudes from them, it might do. I think it's probably unlikely. But yeah, be, be intrigued to know what yeah, Uplift's thoughts on CTS was. Yeah. The other kind of thing that I think really stood out was, um, as is kind of the case with a lot of these these reports, it seems to take that every kind of fossil fuel produced is produced to be burnt um, in fuel. It, it never seems to kind of, it, 
I suppose, appreciate the myriad of other things that it goes into in products, plastics, clothes, and so many of these things that we'll need for the energy transition as well. I mean, Deirdre Mickey mentioned it yesterday during the, the session that you were on, Alistair, mm. that batteries for EV cars require oil and gas, oil, or oil specifically. I mean, oil will also be needed to ensure that the gears of turbines turn for the next 50, 100 years. So if we're placing a moratorium on, on new fields, then it, it seems rather short-sighted. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, I think those are all very good points, uh, Hamish. I mean, yeah, maybe on the first thing, the, the carbon capture thing, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The vast majority of NGOs, um, uh, climate activists that we speak to, um, yeah, I think they're fairly broadly across the board against carbon capture. And I think I think the point, I mean, yes, Damon's, uh, questions I think are are relevant, and we've just heard about that. And with with the Gorgon um, CCS, I mean, will we have these same issues when these carbon capture projects get up and running in the UK? I think it's a very valid question that needs to continue to be probed. Uh, and I think the the NGOs uh, keeping the wolf at the door there is is not necessarily a bad thing. But yes, I, th I agree. I think it is unusual to see um, a report like this commissioned by them to. Um, to appear to be in support of carbon capture and storage. I think if we're still producing, still doing CCS in like 50, 100 years time, you know, we've, 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 we've absolutely done it wrong. But in principle, if the technology works, um, then yeah, maybe we do need to pull all the levers. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess that needs to, we need to maintain the scrutiny on that for absolutely sure. Um, and yeah, I think, I think, I think uh, the, the, the point about supply as for, for use around um, everyday products is, is also important and it does get lost, doesn't it? I mean, uh, I, Deirdre mentioned that battery anode thing. Um, you mentioned uh, Hamish. Uh, James Close on our other podcast, The Cop Shop, this week mentioned it. Somebody owes uh, Sky News uh, a favour <laughs> or two for that news report about the graphite and battery anodes. I think everybody in the oil and gas industry is just latching onto it. But it's a good point. I mean, I had... Um, an executive from an oil company do a, a Teams interview with me the other day, and um, he kind of looked around my living room where I was doing this and says, oh, well, that was made out of hydrocarbons, that was made out of hydrocarbons. So, yeah, it's not all just uh, fuel to be burned, and I think I think um, maybe in the general public that, that might be lost a little bit. I think um, the other thing that, that this is kind of interesting about, obviously we've we've seen uh, today the, the price of... of the international benchmark Brent crude has has hit uh, $100 a barrel. Um, so the incentive now for oil and gas firms to invest in oil and gas projects is very high, very high indeed. Um, and now obviously many of them have made these renewables commitments, um, incentives and, and uh, net zero uh, commitments. But interesting to see to what extent do they want to push on more now with FIDs and projects in the UK and elsewhere? And to what extent will this carbon, ch this climate checkpoint system, uh, perhaps, will that pose a barrier to it? Um, or, you know, if they can get projects through this system, could it indeed, uh, you know, uh, perhaps lend a degree of credibility um, to those projects? Would, would NGOs accept them if these they pass these uh, climate checkpoints. I I think that's a question that's going to remain until we, we get the finer detail, obviously. But uh, 
my heart says no. I think I think there'll there'll always be a problem no matter no matter what's done, <laughs> other than to shut the whole thing down. As we've kind of discussed, that 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 causes problems in itself. You know, people will will freeze. So it's 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 not a, a simple solution. We we had um, the former chief executive of BP, Lord Brown, speak recently about hundred dollar oil, and you know he he said that he's got fears for the. For the natural environment over that sort of thing, because you know oil companies might want to spend more um, money on on developing oil and gas fields rather than renewables, which is what he experienced last time uh, we were at hundred dollar oil. But obviously, a lot has uh, changed since then. So yeah, we we will see, Damon. I mean, if, if just on the CCS question, we've we've already kind of talked about it, but. What what is your general um, acceptance? I mean, do you see the majority of the NGOs you speak to are they kind of against carbon capture and storage technology? If obviously in your neck of the woods, there there are some big questions over that. Yeah, totally. I think there seems to be it's a very one sided argument that oil and gas production is bad. CCS is greenwashing from oil companies. Um, I don't think the the Santos Barossa issue particularly helps because mm. it, it's not quite straightforward there and that gives them ammunition. And like uh, Hamish highlighted earlier, they, all these NGOs like to highlight the Gorgon project in Australia, which is just one project and it's a massive project and it's a massive undertaking and maybe they will get it right in the next year or two and we will learn from that. But I think I think ExxonMobil has successful CCS projects in in the US and possibly elsewhere and and um i had the globe after one of these uh, gorgon or barossa articles last year i had the global ccs institute's office in australia knocking on <laughs> my door and saying hey you know ccs is good and here's some reports <laughs> and can we help you and i said yeah of course you can yeah it's great to hear from you and let, let's chat but the problem is i think the ngos have to allow the voice and uh you know and spin in pr than perhaps the proponents or of CCS, you know, CCS perhaps needs a louder, a louder voice. Perhaps, perhaps we're on the back foot here. The oil and gas, well, the oil and gas industry is on the back foot in the climate change mm. debate, anyway. But yeah, so um, yeah, it's difficult. And also in Australia, so down here compared to the UK, it seems the government is more in the UK is quite encouraging towards CCS and and uh, achieving climate goals and being responsible etc under the paris agreement australia i think is kind of different they're just developing ccs so they can keep exporting loads of gas and lng and uh, you know it's a it's a very different style and i think and it, another thing about oh, sorry i shouldn't talk about the barossa project but no, they kind <laughs> of snuck in a very small window for the approvals just after christmas so that nobody could really get in and lodge a complaint um <laughs> You know, maybe that wouldn't happen in the UK. There'd be a lot more scrutiny. I think the media would be on them, and you know, I think. But in Australia, it's a bit more. Uh, I don't know if laissez-faire is the right word, but you know, it's certainly sneaky. different. Yes, yeah, sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> sneaky, sneaky. That's right. Yeah, uh, get that on the the regulators. No, uh, yeah, no. Very interesting, um, guys. I think we we'll probably talk about this for a bit longer, but we we shall park that up now. Um, we will stick with the North Sea, but move on from CCS. Um, and next up, we'll talk a bit about HMRC clamping down on on tax rules for contractors. Energy is going through seismic change. This will be driven by people attracting new talent and reskilling the current workforce. Our Net Zero Workforce event, held online and at the Chester Hotel in Aberdeen on the 29th of March 2022, will explore the opportunities and challenges in the great energy skills transition. 
and connect leading corporates, educators and innovators with the workforce of tomorrow. Free registration for virtual attendance and tickets for the physical event will be available soon. But right now, we're looking for sponsors to join the event panels to debate this critical issue. Our event partners have the opportunity to project their leadership on energy skills transfer, help set the just transition agenda with the wider industry and legislators, and speak directly with talent that can shape their future. For details of sponsorship opportunities, email ryan.stevenson at energyvoice.com. Details are in the episode notes. Okay, Hamish. So when I say IR35 tax rules, it's it's not the sexiest, most interesting topic in the world. Um, I hope we've not lost some listeners, um, even as I speak. <laughs> but we've had we've had lots of interest in it, and we've historically had lots of interest in it in Energy Voice, and um, again, plenty on the of it of interest in it this week on the website. Tell us a bit about what's been what's been happening there. Yeah, I mean, considering it's not the most high octane subjects, IR thirty five stories always do very very well. Mm. It's quite peculiar, and even well, approaching a year as we'll just come on to, approaching a year since they were uh, brought in, they're still doing pretty well. So, so who knows? Maybe there's a lot of um, people out there who are very secret fans mm. of UK tax law. I don't think fans the right word, but definitely. Or <laughs> well, tax dodgers. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. <laughs> Def- a keen interest in UK tax uh, tax law. <laughs> but yeah, so the IR35 tax laws, they were brought in last year after being delayed um, from 2020, which was when they were originally meant to be rolled out. Um, for those who don't remember what they are, that's a, nothing wrong with that whatsoever <laughs> because uh, they only <laughs> impact a, a very small but um, avid group. Um, but yeah, HMRC rolled out these reforms to clamp down on workers classed as contractors, um, but who were doing the same jobs as employees that are on payroll. So freelancers that say worked in an office for a company five days a week, did the exact same job as the person sitting next to them, but enjoyed the income tax benefits of being a contractor. Um, but since April 6th, uh, medium and large firms, the onus is now on them to rule whether a contractor is self-employed or kind of working under an, an umbrella company, say, or if their work reflects that of someone who should be on payroll. Now, kind of given the oil and gas sector's love of contractors, mm. um, these changes cause more than a few headaches, I imagine, to the payroll departments of companies. Um, and I think it's pretty fair to say that they weren't popular almost across the board. Um, unions don't like them because they eat into to workers' wages further. Companies don't like them because it restricts their access to contractors and makes, the, makes their job kind of a bit more difficult in hiring them, really. Um, so although these changes were brought in last year, HMRC had the, the good grace to implement a soft landing period um, that's been in effect to allow contractors and companies to, to get their ducks in a row, to decide if a worker should be on or off payroll and to, to tighten any loopholes that could be exposed once it ends. Um, now that grace period is going to expire a year to the day, so from April 6th, so just just under a couple of months, uh, companies and contractors that are found to be in contradiction of the rules could be hit with tax penalties. Um, so we went to a few of our experts on this. Uh, Brian Rudkin, employment law uh, expert from Johnston Carmichael, said the kind of the nice phrase of this really ups the ante on IR35. So penalties start at a minimum of 15% for, for careless errors flagged by HMRC. That has the potential to rise to 100% of the liability in the most serious cases. Um, so for companies that are 
within the rules, nothing to worry about. But for those outsides, um, unknowingly or not, I think that's quite an important point. It's kind of even a different interpretation of the rules doesn't mean that you are exempt from being hit by them should HMRC kind of come like, come after you like Liam Neeson and Taken and, and decide that you are you are you are not uh, playing by the rules. Um, so oil and gas sector has been picked alongside financial services as one of the first to go under the spotlight of the IR35 compliance teams. Uh, Brian Rudkin says it's likely because HMRC sees a lot of uh, low-hanging fruit, he said, in the industry, given its history of contractors. And he said that there will be casualties along the line. Um, so it certainly looks like the case that could be the case given the experience of the public sector where these rules have been in place since uh, 2017. So uh, DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, it was hit with a IR35 related tax bill late last year of 48 million. Um, Ministry of Justice was hit with one of 72.1 million. So but all in all, kind of these government departments, the amount of penalties that are have been issued is almost sitting at 250 million. So it's a really kind of substantial. And because um, older companies don't really realize until maybe a year, then these these things are backdated. So they're then hit with an even bigger tax bill. Um, so just to close out, what can companies do to make sure they don't receive the, the sharp end of an HMRC tax penalty? Uh, Matt Fryer from Brooks and Legal, he says firms should make sure they've got a robust IR35 approach in place to ensure appropriate con- um, and to ensure appropriate contracts are kind of fleshed out and that can help them to ward off potential penalties while maintain this ac- this access to a pool of talented contractors um, and he said it will help to deliver post-pandemic growth which I think is something that's incredibly important because to take into context of when these rules came out middle of COVID the same time as mass uncertainty was was hitting the industry I think a lot of businesses probably didn't really feel they didn't need any additional hoops to have to jump through, mm. but here they are. And you can understand why HMRC made this move to to clamp down on disguised employees, as, the, as they were called, um, even if you don't agree with the way that they've gone about it or don't like the rules. Um, and it doesn't seem that they're going to go away anytime soon, especially given they've been in the public sector since 2017. So I think for a lot of people, frustratingly, it's, the, it's a case of making the best out of a... A bad situation. Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder if uh, HMRC could, you know, use these uh, these IR thirty five millions to perhaps, you know, commission Liam Neeson for a, a taken esque IR thirty five poster or something, <laughs> some sort of ad campaign. I, I quite I quite like the idea. Yeah, um, yeah. Universally seems to be hated, bar I think by um, HMRC who loves it. And dare I say, the lawyers. We I don't think we've ever had a, a problem getting a quote about an IR35 story in the years since uh, these reforms uh, came in. Um, so yeah, it's it's. But 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 you know, uh, as you say, Hamish. I mean, disproportionately, uh, the UK North Sea obviously relies on the contracting community. Um, I think therein lies the interest. Obviously, so many people are affected by this um, for for this industry. Um, so. Yeah, I, I I think I guess the soft landing period is is understandable, right? I mean, we have we've obviously had so much going on, but look, uh, activities up, oil prices are up, um, the economies are recovering, and I guess it's now to now time to make sure that your your house uh, is in order. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty amazing some of the 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 bills that have been racked up here. I mean, as 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 you were alluding to in terms of the the government's asks. I mean, even. What DEFRA, the former uh, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, 
A government department um, fined uh, £48 million for failing to comply and, and similarly for the, the Ministry of, of Justice. I mean, these are, these are if they're willing to impose huge bills on uh, government departments, I don't know if that's, uh, you know, I don't know if that's uh, set an example or, I mean, if uh, to what extent smaller, hopefully smaller businesses are, are not quite uh, fined in such a heavy way. But yeah, clearly a clear incentive to, Make sure you've got your your house your house in order. Gosh, I think the fact that the fines were so big as well, because uh, these departments didn't really realise they weren't within the rules for for so long. So this tax bill just kept ticking up and ticking up, and then eventually it got flagged, and and then it had kind of reached this point. But yeah, no kind of um, public sector solidarity in terms of um, rolling out perhaps smaller bills for for, for civil servants, although. I presume these departments get a lot of their funding from HMRC anyway, so it seems like it's a, perhaps just a maybe a circle there. Mm, I don't know. Indeed. Somebody will probably correct me on, on the the nuances of, of government department funding. Damon, any particular celebrities that you think would be good for an HMRC kind of crackdown poster or any thoughts on that? Celebrities? I don't know. Liam Neeson, <laughs> <laughs> Liam Neeson style action stars? Yeah, I don't so, know. sorry. I just couldn't. When I, I, uh, a bit of a tangent, but when I heard disguised employees, I couldn't help thinking about invisibility cloaks and Harry Potter. But, um, <laughs> oh, my not, gosh. Not really chasing down people for money, I suppose. Amazing. Amazing. Well, HMRC, if you're listening, it's gold that uh, is coming out of the Energy Voice Out Loud podcast today. Uh, and, you know, uh, 10% is fine. Thank you so much. <laughs> anyway, uh, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Damon and Hamish for joining me. I've been Alsa Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.